Welcome to another episode of Coming Up Next. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for the download or for the stream. If you're not already subscribed, you can find links to subscribe at comingupnext.com.au where you'll also find the entire archive, all 137 previous episodes, conversations with some of the world's top creatives like my guests this week. Lee Matthews and Neil Triffitt, the producer and the writer-director of Emo the Musical, which is uh, just an extraordinary uh, piece of Australian cinema. If you haven't seen it, if you're not familiar with the film, you can find it on iTunes, on Google Play. Uh, It's available on all of those online platforms. You should do yourself a favour. Before you listen to this episode, hit pause, make sure that you've subscribed to the show, then while you're in iTunes, go to the movies section and uh, buy or rent Emo the Musical, then come back and hit play again on this, uh, on this interview. Uh, we get into their career, we get into the inspiration for this. Uh, we talk about, you know, really towing the line, um, being adventurous and being daring in, in what they do put into, into the film. And we talk about the usual silliness, philosophy and life. And if iTunes uh, isn't your thing, you can find other links to the other platforms at emothemusical.com as well as lots of other information uh, about the film itself. So while you've got that browser open, uh, here is my chat with Lee Matthews and Neil Triffitt. really appreciate you inviting me and both you and Neil agreeing to uh, stumble through a ramble with me um, about you know the work that you guys have done you guys have worked together for a while now we met at VCA in 2010 um, and I produced Neil's graduating film then so we've been working ever since right and Neil you were doing an undergrad and Lee you were doing a postgrad is that right yeah that that's right okay so what, Lee just to sort of, I guess, recap, what, what had you been doing up to doing this postgrad in producing? Uh, prior to producing, I've done about a decade's worth of arts and festivals management, primarily focused on the Midsummer Festival, which is in Melbourne, and uh, another decade prior to that in uh, international trade. Okay, wow, that's quite a diverse, old, yes. <laughs> diverse background. <laughs> so what, what was it the, that, I guess, thrust you into going back to school and and studying filmmaking? Producing um, screen content is vastly different, but similar, if that makes sense, to producing um, art and and theatre, art art events and theatre. And having kids, being a stay-at-home dad, slowly going crazy, watching a whole lot of kids' content (laughs) uh, gave me a few ideas for some TV shows that I I wanted to produce or create. And um, I quickly realised that I needed to understand the language, I needed to understand the industry, and that's when I went back to VCA and did a postgrad in producing to um, to get a handle on how things work. Since graduating, I haven't done any kids' content since, but right. uh, that was the motivation. Yeah, 
what was what were like what was some of the premises of kids content that you were oh i had an amazing concept about telling the time it was fascinating <laughs> riveting yeah <laughs> and now what was your um pathway i guess to to the vca i got in really young so uh, i graduated I, I was spending a year doing university down in tasmania which is where i'm from uh, and before then i'd done quite a bunch of odd jobs around the place uh, and i kind of just wanted a, a escape from tasmania for a little bit That's fair uh, enough. it's it's a lovely place but it's it's very quiet culturally it's very quiet so i applied to a whole bunch of arts places uh, around the country and vca took me i didn't actually know what vca was at the time mm -hmm. uh, so i kind of got pretty lucky <laughs> in that way uh, but from there was yeah i i kind of worked out it was something i was good at it was something i enjoyed doing uh yeah and it, it it just kind of just continued to to rumble along right you guys have uh just spent the last few years creating and releasing this amazing feature film uh, neil your first feature film uh emo the musical which this year got a cinema release and now a um, svod and um and dvd release which is pretty incredible especially given you know the kind of timeline that you turned it around and it was what two years from the beginning of production until it premiered at the melbourne film festival and um you know just the whole uh i guess story and process of the film is remarkable uh i i am interested to know though before kind of going into that if you guys sort of remember when you first thought about becoming uh, you know working in the film industry or working in the entertainment industry what your first kind of memory of show business is i think for me it's like i've never really decided to be in film it's kind of something that has continued to happen to the point whereas now i think after having just made a feature film i get to decide whether this is what i want to do so i'm currently in the process now of kind of going is this the is this the industry i've had some success at it i think i'm good at it but is this something that i want to do i think artists should be continually asking themselves that uh, i art is something i've always been interested in um i went to a very small school and uh there were there were not many opportunities to do art so every every opportunity i i absolutely took so i yeah it was very early on and i can't quite remember and in some ways it might have been in opposition to the other kids to go well you guys don't like art that's what i'm gonna like that's gonna be my thing and i think i've kind of followed that into adulthood which is you know really healthy i'm sure <laughs> um as a 10 year old i was interested in acting so I, I we lived in Craigieburn, which is a good hours north of Melbourne, and I made my mother drive me into acting classes in the in the middle of the city. Um, so I've always been attracted to this form of entertainment, but I quite quickly realised that I wasn't an actor and I couldn't right. really act. Um, and then you know I I, I, tem I I gave gave that not that it was a dream at the age of ten, but you know gave up that desire. Um, got on with my life, um, as I said, you know, a decade in international trade. And then through the gay and lesbian community and through Midsummer um, Festival, I had an opportunity to embed myself within the arts it, 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 more so than I ever have. And, uh, you know, everything sort of springboard from there. I also did a, a quick stint as an actor. I tried to get into NIDA and one year they loved me and the next year they said no. So I was still trying to get into NIDA the year that I got into VCA and I was just not. I just got progressively worse as time went by. I thought I might have been good to start with. Just I acted too much, probably. I've seen you acting gigs. You you did okay. I now do like I do totally straight face, but I don't bother acting. I do this stage show where I, I play this man who is obsessed with Tony Abbott, like literally almost masturbating, obsessed with Tony Abbott. Uh, and it's kind of it's nice to kind of get on stage and not act and just kind of go, hey, 
and people get confused and they get upset and I find that that's what I find fun these days less than less than the actual acting I remember when you when you um, created that that uh, show and I was so worried that people would, would think that they that was truly were your politics they did they did think that they dealt we we, we dealt we healed it was kind of uh, Andy Kaufman-esque yeah, it was a little bit like that. I don't feel the need necessarily to do that anymore. I saw that that Jim Carrey doco. Oh, uh, it's yeah, bloody right. brilliant. Makes you not want to be an artist anymore. But yeah, it's it's great. Yeah, I loved it. I, I, I was watching it going, I have to watch this again already. I hadn't even finished watching it. It was brilliant. I mean, I love Man on the Moon. Um, but I thought that the doco was almost better than the film. Yeah, I, I think the movie's amazing and you kind of go, it's worth it. Well, you kind of go, I think it's worth it that he went through that, that yeah. pain. I think one of the, the big takeaways for me was that, you know, we kind of treat art like an industry. It's like if he just did that and then went off and did something else for 10 years, he'd be fine. He'd be a well-adjusted human being. But there's the expectation that Jim Carrey has to be an industry and he has to mm. then go make something else. It's like he just couldn't have, he just couldn't have kept going. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it was interesting that because it, it wasn't really documentary that was like about the behind the scenes of man on the moon i mean that it, it was but that was more like the kind of vehicle for a documentary about jim carrey and, and identity in a kind of bigger sense yeah it was like a documentary inside jim carrey's head and yeah. i think it was actually really effective in that way and yeah i think you do get out of it going i don't know if this is where art is something that's necessarily healthy to do in a long-term way like i'm sure when we were cavemen i don't reckon we would have been we wouldn't have had a permanent storyteller. We would have taken it in turns. And when people had something to say, they'd go out and they'd work on producing that piece of work and bring it to people. Whereas now it's an industry. It's like you're forced to kind of go, all right, what's next? And you're like, oh, I don't have anything next. And it's like, no, no, go out and give us something next. And you have to mine deeper and deeper into really places that can be quite harmful, I think, just so you can continue to make a living out of it. Because you can't just rock up and say, I'm going to be a filmmaker now anymore anyway. And say, oh, I want to be a filmmaker, I've got this story, let me tell it. It's like, well, what other 10 stories have you told first? And it's just really, it's completely unsustainable, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, how, how significant do you think it is, both of you, that, and perhaps this is something um, maybe that is kind of ingrained in film school, uh, the idea that, you know, you, your stories or the stories that you tell have to come from your own kind of experiences and your own sense of truth or whatever you want to call it. I'm much more commercial than Neil. Neil uh, has a commercial sensibility. He's absolutely driven by the art that he creates, but I'm much um, more fo focused on, on the commercial. So I do understand that it is an, an entertainment industry and you're creating stories that uh, a, a very specific audience will want to immerse themselves in. Uh, so I don't believe the story needs to come from uh, a personal experience. It certainly needs authenticity and specificity. Um, however, uh, it can, you know, it can be imagined, it should be imagined and it should be uh, larger than anybody's single life. I remember in, at VCA at film school, like one of the very first classes we had was uh, screenwriting and the lecturer made us come up with horrible stories that had happened to us in our past and kind of the inference they never said it directly but the inference was this is where you're going to get your stories from your traumatic history <laughs> and i remember everybody went out and they came up with the most horrific things that they could think of there was kind of like a level of one-upmanship i'm a, i'm a kid from the port arthur massacre and i my family had to go to that and i pulled it out in front of a class that i was not ready to discuss that with in front of um so there was just the feeling straight away that this is where you get your, your stories from and i think like on the one hand i i think that's true you do have to kind of have a level of connection to a story you've got to know what it is you want to say within that story because stories need shapes and they need to have a, a point to them 
but at the same time, I think that you need to be able to, the danger of that is, is we can have very limited stories. Um, like film school kids aren't a diverse population. Like, like, well, uh, forget, forget sexuality and uh, race. It's like just talking about like class. It's like, there are no people who are lower class within a film school. Like they just, they just aren't allowed in. They just don't have the, uh, they don't have the resources to, to support their way through film school, which means, I don't know if you're, if you're coming in, the danger of working from that process is you've got to have a huge amount of empathy to be able to tell those stories. Otherwise you just end up with this blamange of kind of like middle-class rubbish, which uh, it, it's the danger of working that way. Yeah. What sort of films did you, do you go, did you guys find, uh, I guess, inspired or motivated you like when, when you were going to or at film school? Uh, I went through a Dadon's Brothers period, which is ridiculous. We made it. We made emo the musical, and here we are talking about the Dadon Brothers. The Dadon Brothers does not influence emo at all. <laughs> um, but it was kind of nice to go. These could be really simple stories that are. Um, uh, they're, they're working class stories they're, they're about things that really matter and they're about human needs that are really basic human needs and I've always found that that kind of form of cinema to be really interesting but at the same time it's like I'm obsessed with Alexander Payne and I continually go back to Election as a movie that is about human pain but it's also about massive global intellectual ideas and it's in a high school movie uh, so I, I find that kind of cinema fascinating too mm. uh, we, we both sh- share an adoration for, for Master Payne um, but I love to pull out that my favorite, and it is quite genuine, my favorite film of all time is Greece. Uh, and you pull that out in amongst a, 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 a group of uh, film school wankers and it kind of, <laughs> you know, drops to the fall quite quickly. Yeah. So what was the first thing that you, the first thing that you guys collaborated on was Neil's graduating film. Did, before kind of pulling that out of the bag, Neil, do you remember the first film that you made while you were at film school, what that experience was like? Uh, the very first one was um, we, we they kind of build you up incrementally to making to making bigger films. Uh, so there were a lot of smaller exercises that like exercises that we worked on. The year before we made a film together, I made a film called Sarah, uh, which was inspired by a big issue article about um, this person who who went around cleaning up after dead people because dead people die, and if they don't have relatives, they're kind of just that the government has to go and, and fill in the gap and, and uh, clean up the houses and, and all that jazz. So I made a film that was kind of a, a, a almost a narrated drama, kind of like Jane Campion's Passionless Moments, where it's just a, a narration about um, these people who have just died and the, the processes that have gone through their heads and what happens to the people who are left behind. And it's kind of it's kind of funny, but it was yeah, it was it was abstract. It was really quite quite an abstract movie. Mm. Very dark. Yeah, dark, but also quite funny. I think, yeah. like the voiceover yeah, is, yeah, the voiceover is quite, quite affectionate towards the people who are dead, but, yeah. but doesn't sentimentalise them either. Look, it's still one of my favourite short films. It's, in, it's, it's, it's a really, it's a really uh, wonderful film. So, what well, Lee, Lee liked it so much, he came up to me in the in the cafeteria, <laughs> and really, basically, all you need to get to to get me on side is just butter my ego so he just came in i don't know who told you that but it worked he came in and said like i'm sitting around with all the other film school kids and you know you kind of you're all competing because you all think you're a genius and this producer walked in and says neil your film was amazing and i'm like oh all the other kids turn and look at me i'm like this this guy's got me i'll do (laughs) i'll do anything (laughs) totally calculated right yeah of course of course no it was quite genuine yeah um, what, what did you find to be the, the part of the process that you kind of relished? I really love working with actors. Um, 
the problem solving things are the most beautiful things where you kind of get get in a room with somebody else and say all right he's he's going to be the challenges here and this is how we're going to work through them so i love like especially with that film it was a film where actors kind of didn't have an arc in their scenes like they didn't rock up and they, there wasn't a point where they they didn't get what they wanted um or there was they didn't go in with a huge motivation and then they had that motivation thwarted so they had to think about how to overcome that there was none of that it was like they were just doing little things like buttoning up things so it was kind of building up uh a mental backstory for them around that so just kind of going to the actor and going this is odd this is an unusual thing for you to be doing how can we facilitate this to help you do it and we did some amazingly fun things i've never done things as fun as this before i took um stephanie moreau who was the actress in it she she and i went and hung out some into some cemeteries for a while um another guy was playing a an asylum seeker so we went to the asylum seeker the um what is it the the one that the immigration museum which is on flinders street so so we went there um, and yeah, I've never worked like that again since, basically because of resources and lack of resources. Um, but it was wonderful, and I think the actors really appreciated it. So at least when we got on set, we liked each other, which yeah. was really nice. Um, but yeah, I really value that part of the process a lot. So Lee's butted you up. He's uh, he's got you on side, um, and you guys decide. Well, he, um, you, I guess you guys decide to collaborate together on your graduating film. What was the process like for you guys of, of working together on, on that short? I think it was one of the first times Neil got to pitch stories to someone to see if they would work with him. So um, we sat down and went through a range of ideas um, and, uh, and Shoplifting is the film that we end up making together and the one that resonated with me most, but it wasn't all my decision. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there was partly wanting to give a collaborator a lot of options. So I gave him several scripts to read, but also not quite knowing what I wanted to do myself, um, which I think is something I, I still struggle with. Um, but yeah, it was kind of going through, these are ideas that I'm interested in. We, we both focused on, on shoplifting, um, which is kind of, it's, it's a working class story that's a little bit funny too. It's about a, a, a man who's teaching his son how to shoplift in an era when they're introducing those security panels in the front of department stores for the first time. And his older son is now stealing things off the internet. He's just doing straight credit card fraud. <laughs> so it's kind of like the, it's the times are changing and who is going to be able to control what the youngest son learns and who, who is going to, who has the legacy in the family. Um, so it, yeah, it was something that it's a nice idea uh, in that there's a bit of humanity in it, but it's also a little bit odd and unusual. Like we don't um, normally hang around shoplifters, I don't think. So no. I think, we, I think we both like that, yeah, that yeah, part yeah. of the idea. And it is, you are, you undersell it. It is funny. Yeah. Yeah. It is. <laughs> um, well, just as a sidebar, what was it yeah. like to, to go back to school, to go back to uh, tertiary education? Yeah, look, I, I, I found it exhilarating. It's um, lucky enough I was able to uh, spend a year, you know, uh, full-time studying. Interestingly, the, uh, my, my colleagues at, at, in, in the postgrad course were all around my age. So it was a real coming together of people from a, a huge, hugely different walks of life um, and, uh, and sharing uh, one common interest and, and some common, common goals. And th- yeah, thoroughly enjoyed it. So you made, the, you made shoplifting um, and then... And then it turned out okay. It turned yeah. out okay? Yeah, it turned out to be a really, a really good film. So we actually got some festival... We, we, we really got some festival traction. Um, we, look, we've tried... Uh, Melbourne, pretty. I've made fifteen short films and tried Melbourne Festival every time, 
uh, and didn't get in with shoplifting. We didn't get in with Emo the Musical, the short version either. Even after Berlin, we didn't get into yeah. <laughs> into myth with the, the uh, with Emo. Yeah, but and there's a, there's a, there's a payoff for that with the feature, but um, uh, we uh, traveled. We we shoplifting played around the world um, and gave us. I really gave, you know really gave us some confidence. I think. It also gave us a lot of understanding, um, like just working out how the film festivals work, because it's a totally different scale to when you have a feature film. But to kind of go, well, the process of entering film festivals is is trial by error. Like everyone talks about the strategies that they have, but I think mainly Lee would have to go through the process where it's like, you've just got to bloody submit to everything. You, like you, you see those films that have got 50 or 60 films, uh, film festivals to their credit and you go, oh, well, their film must be amazing. And sometimes mm. you just go, no, they've got people behind the scenes who are entering into so many festivals. Like I know with Emo, uh, we had money from Screen Australia. So we spent over $2,000 submitting money into uh, Emo into film festivals. Yeah. yeah, which is just enormous. Yeah. Um, but you've just got to do it and you've got to have the money. So you've got to be, you know, you can't be poor. Uh, <laughs> awful, <laughs> but true. Yeah. Uh, what what were some of the challenges, I guess, in in making shoplifting, if there were any, in the in the production process? The big one, the enormous one, was the fact that it's completely set in department stores, like <laughs> entirely, and right. to the point where it's like in the last few days, I'm like, oh, do we set this in an antique store? What what else can we find? Uh, there's not many department stores that are independently run. You go and talk to West Farmers, and they just no cigar. They don't give a give a flying damn about whether or not they they want you. Uh, or whether you can film in their store. So, yeah, we had to really make things work um, uh, around kind of smaller department stores. I had a lot of trust issues during that process just because Lee was not able to produce the goods until very late in the game. And looking back, it's like we were lucky to have done it at all. But it was a hard process. How, how did yeah. it go? Look, we, we went to every major shopping centre and, and we would either, as Neil said, we'd either get blanket no, very straightforward no, or they'd, they'd take some time to say no and that was a challenge and, and that's a good segue into casting as well where you're putting it out there, you're, you're hoping for a yes, everything's on hold waiting, you get the no and then you've got to start again. And we did that a number of times um, before finally fi- finding um, the, the you know locations that really did suit suit the film well but that was the 11th hour and as Neil Neil was saying there was a point where he's like okay look I'll, I'll rewrite it I'll set it somewhere completely different in, in, set it in a completely different location um, and I wasn't quite ready to admit defeat but uh, yeah it took the it took until the 11th hour and we finally we shot in Dimmies in Richmond before it was closed down. So we've got a little bit of Melbourne history now, maybe, which we really I think is beautiful. That's but very cool. The lady who was uh, in, in charge of it, she had had our request on her desk for five weeks, right. and we would continually ring. And I think they just weren't responding because they thought, well, it's easy, we don't care. Um, so they called us up the day the day before, or and they said, yeah, sure, come in. And we're like, we, we've been dying here. <laughs> um, but for them, it was like it was a it was a, a no, not an issue at all. Um, but it was yeah, it was for us. Yeah, of course. Now you got it over the line in the end. Totally, yes. And it was crucial that we did, or it wouldn't have made the film would have made sense if we weren't in department stores. Yeah, yeah, sure. And so, I guess from the festival circuit that you guys did, you were able to kind of leverage the, um, I guess, the profile of the respect that you kind of create for yourself as artists. Lee, you went on to um, co-produce the Heckler and uh, Our Little Secret as well, documentary. Yep. Um, what was the process of go- going into that sort of stuff like? It's interesting to to um, leave film school, find out, realize how competitive the industry is, 
try like hell to punch out in any way you can, get some festival success through shoplifting, but that didn't necessarily translate into additional opportunities for us. And I'm very much an opportunist, so I actually had to, I was just out there looking for a range of ways to try and get um, uh, our, 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 our concepts uh, produced. Our Little Secret is a documentary that screened on the ABC, and that was my first broadcast credit. Um, there was an opportunity for directors under the age of 30 to make their first longer form um, uh, show. And uh, it came from a concept. Uh, it, it, its main character is a friend of ours, Chaz Fisher, who we went to VCA with. So we got our little secret up with the ABC and that um, uh, allowed me to present myself to Screen Australia and to Film Victoria as a film producer with uh, a qualifying credit. Um, the Heckler is a body swap comedy that um, friends, of, friends of mine, Ben Plaza and Steve Mitchell, uh, wrote and directed, and I came, on, I came on board to assist them through the process. They also pretty much self-produced, and that was a, what, you know, what people perceive as, as low budget, which really means no budget, um, you know, a few thousand dollars in cash and a whole lot of reinvested uh, salaries that will never be repaid. Um, and that that was an amazing opportunity for me to experience the feature film process, but also learn what not to do, or what I thought at that stage, what I shouldn't do, um, in 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 greenlighting a project without industry support. So when we uh, made him the the short film, and we were lucky enough to get completion funds from Screen Australia, and then finally get into Berlin. There was an opportunity to go to to go knock on Screen Australia's door, um, with all of that behind me, to then try and get a feature version of Emo up, and to tick boxes. And for me, that was a state, um, a, a, a federal agency, a state agency, and coming back to MIF to to secure MIF Premier f- uh, Film funds, um, to really um, give the project ticks of approval so that the industry would recognise it as, as inverted commas, a, a proper film. All right. And Neil, you, you went off and worked a bit in the industry. I saw so you did um, worked as, a, as an assistant director on um, Partisan. I was an assistant director's attachment, so I was there oh. on the helpful days when they needed me around. I did a whole bunch of things when I, when I graduated, so mainly I went off. I, I was doing this really strange play while I was at film school where they got all these um, people of different faiths together to produce this this project, and I went in as an atheist and said, I'm an atheist, so what can I do? And, I, and we made this beautiful play that was performed at 45 Downstairs, and from there they kind of found out I was in film, so I, I went into doing documenting work for um, different theatre projects and that was amazing work uh, so I travelled around Victoria uh, speaking to people who uh, they they were dying um, and they had kids with disabilities and it used to be that kids with disabilities or especially kids with Down syndrome would die before parents uh, and then suddenly the parents are, the, the, the kids are living so long so it was like a huge challenge for the government and for these parents as to what they did with their kids for the first time um, so I don't know. I got to, I got to do that. I worked with Platform Youth Theatre, who worked with disadvantaged youths and, uh, and a whole bunch of different people, uh, and it was it was absolutely amazing work. I tapped into um, some 
uh, some production work. It's kind of hard to tap into production work in a lot of ways, especially if it's like not something you're totally sure you want to be doing. Uh, like I was getting so fulfilled by my um, by my community arts work that I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to go and be a production runner. Uh, but I did. I went off and I did, I did a production running gig on Cliffy, which was an ABC telly movie. Uh, also uh, produced by Nigel O'Dell, who was the um, producing lecturer at, at VCA the year that we were there. Um, and I don't know, I was applying for things. So I know Lee and I were applying for, we were keeping in touch and we were applying for projects uh, like the ABC Open Shot docos and just my ideas were just not getting up. Um, and I, I remember applying for, uh, actually I probably shouldn't say the funding body, it wasn't Screen Oz, but it was another funding body um, with a script concept that I had. And it was like one of the few things that was open to new and emerging writers. And it's, it was just one of those moments where you realize like it's just really important who they have assessing because I got comments back that said you should throw it in like this is this is abominable you should not you should not be a screenwriter um and it was awful uh and i was i was on cliffy at the time and i just made a lot of money and i'm like well i'm gonna have to fight that person and i'm not going to be able to write to them and say you're a jerk but i had the money and we made emo the short off that and from there we got the completion funds and it was kind of gangbusters after emo started to go so well Mm. but yeah there was there was that point where it's like if I if I didn't have the money coming to my bank account at that particular time, I might have thrown it in and just stuck around and did community arts. Yeah, right. You guys self funded the the short, didn't you? Yeah, we did. How, how how important was it in that moment for you guys to kind of put your money where your mouth is, so to speak? Well, that was the first time Lee had put his money where his mouth was for that project. So that was like shoplifting wasn't that expensive, but it was um, covered by me. It was VCA is different, and there's like the the director kind of comes in and says this is my movie you help me or you get out and it's like so of course the director the producers aren't going to give money to to a narcissistic screwball like that um but it was something we knew we wanted to do a project together lee and i had always said well what's the next one going to be and we always knew there was going to be something fun and we thought it was going to be a musical from the get-go so i think lee was more invested in it from an emotional perspective he wanted it to be good as well and we both wanted to like get get some runs on the board with a funding body so yeah we both we both Mm. put our money in for that one yeah, and look, it's investing in Neil as much as, as, as my own own career. I think Neil, Neil is right. When you go through uh, film school, you're, pretty, you're volunteering on a whole range of projects. And I uh, made some 15, I was involved in some 15 shorts. Um, and I always said I volunteer, I, I volunteer my time, but not my money. Um, and uh, you you leave that film the film school environment and and it, you know it's it's it was all about both our getting our careers going so of course uh, it meant um, investing our own our, our own dollars there weren't any opportunities um, to for, for government support with short films around 2012 2013 um, so completion funds was the only opportunity to attract some form of government funding and therefore the government tick of approval um, and at the time it would, there was a 15 minute limit on short films and our film was running at 20 and I kind of thought well I'm really proud of this film um, I don't think we can get it down to 15 minutes they'll probably reject it because they will realize that they that we couldn't get it down to 15 minutes but at least they'll see our work and we'll, we'll we will have hit their radar and we we're lucky enough to be the only ones that year to be offered completion funds which meant we had to bloody well get it down to 15 minutes we didn't take the idea seriously at all I left the country because I right. thought it was like such a unlikelihood of getting emo emo up into the completion funds so lee gave me a call when i was on a boat i think in mumbai and it's like hey by the way we have money i'm like oh this is this is good um and you have to cut a song 
Yes. Oh, yeah. Because we had, yeah we had to remove a song. It, it's so a lot of it was just kind of fancy editing. So we had Sasha Dylan Bell, who's a great editor, come on and just kind of trim the trim the crap out of it. But they also wanted to change the ending around. And it was just, with the feature film. It's like I think Screen Oz was pretty probably less hands off with story than they were with the with the short film. They were kind of like, this is what we think you should do with the short film. And I think to some extent they were right. Or, or rather, they said, here's our problem with it. So the ending. Um, of the short film, uh, basically for those playing at home, it's it's about an an emo boy and a Christian girl who fall in love. Their friends don't like each other, and in the final scene, his friends have all been expelled because they've done horrible things to the Christians. So now the Christians see him as like free game. It's like they're going to claim him as one of theirs, and he turns around and says no. Um, but there was kind of a lot of ambiguity about why he said no, um, and exactly what happened in her head towards the end of the movie so they they just said this is ambiguous we want you to make it less ambiguous and that was kind of the only note we did mm. we had and we we had limited access to actors we had limited amount of money and we had to go all right so if we've got this actor how how do we reshoot this scene a year later when they've all, you know they're young people and they've grown up a year uh their hair's all different uh we've got to book out the exact same space and we just had to write an ending that would somehow work amongst that yeah right it did. Yeah, I think it did. Yeah. Um, and and for those playing at home, they can see the short films that we've been speaking about actually on your website, can't they? Yeah, emothemusical.com. There is you a go. Good plug. Yeah. And uh, shoplifting is also on the YouTube channel too. Yeah. Yeah, it's there. It's all there. It's, it's all, all there. there. So you got the completion funding, you're submitting it to festivals around the world, emo, the short film, um, and you get into Berlin. Yeah, Berlin and our life changed. Um, it's one of those things that everyone aspires to get into a top tier festival. Um, we'd actually tried the year before with the longer version and we were shortlisted but didn't make it. Um, and they'll only allow you to apply again if, with significant changes, which we were confident in. But it did mean that we had to wait. So, uh, you know, when going for, when you look at the top tier, you look at uh, Cannes, Venice, Berlin, Sundance, and Toronto. Um, they all play at different times of the year. And uh, we, were, we held out on Berlin, which meant uh, holding back on some of those others, but got in and, um, and, uh, and life changed. It was one of those odd things as well where we got a no before we got a yes. Uh, I, think, I think they said oh, no first. And yes. Lee, Lee is good in that he badges people um, until they say yes. No, that's not how we got in. <laughs> but we, we were confused as to why it was a no, then a yes. And then when we got there, there was uh, this beautiful girl in the office. And it's like, oh, I've forgotten her name. I'm a jerk. But she she said we were just singing this the songs in the office for so long after we saw the film and it had been rejected that I don't know they must have had a spot come up and they said well let's let let let's schedule it just to, just to keep the people in the office happy almost yeah. uh, and then of course to be kind of a, a slightly commercial film in the middle of an art house festival meant that we we really stood out like I think a dog was murdered by a young boy in the film preceding emo in the screening that we were in right so it's like when emo came on everyone's like oh thank thank thanks that this has been scheduled um, and I think the the uh, jury the young jury they they got it and they they were appreciative that there was something lighter in there as well and we got the special mention and i think it was because of that the mm. fact that we were an odd film programmed in the schedule so did you guys you guys went to berlin i assume we did and we were supported by i think film victoria and then they house us the the festival themselves when we were there that's it's, very cool it's a great festival and screen australia, screen australia. yeah both oh cool uh, what was the experience like of, of going to that it's so nice to be like in a, in another country where people like they flock around 
that film festival uh, and people value art so strongly and it's such a huge part of their culture there which isn't necessarily the case in australia so it's just beautiful to be somewhere you're incredibly appreciated like not just a little bit or tolerated you are you are held up as being something that is really useful to society so uh, i don't know i think it's always a big ego boost because we did berlin earlier in the year too and in some ways it's a little bit deceptive because you leave going oh i am a worthwhile human being what i do does matter and then you the moment you leave the festival is like oh no it doesn't <laughs> everyone everyone still hates us um but bubbles popped it's this yeah it's this beautiful this beautiful fictional world where anything is possible yeah i agree also it was my first film international film market as well so it was eye-opening the commerciality of it all was was extremely eye-opening as well what, what do you feel like you learned, I guess, from that? Just how competitive and how much crap is produced each year. Mm. Um, it's also when you look at how much America dominates international cinema um, and what. And I learned a bit about what you need to do to stand out. And when you compare that to uh, a reputation that Australia had in the years prior to this that we were making kind of dreary, you know... Um, navel gazing kind of shows it was it was a a real opportunity it was a real wake-up call to 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 make sure that what we were developing was uh capitally entertaining so from here you kind of we well, you you not kind of you have the uh credibility to go on and, and make the feature-length version of emo and as was mentioned earlier you know from uh production to premiere it was two years or under two years mm -hmm. which is phenomenal considering that most Australian films take seven years ish to be made from um, uh, conception to completion what was the process like of actually you know did you have the script already written did you have the songs already written what was the what was the creative process like so when we got the completion funds, we started to be a little bit cheeky because this was the first time we had spoken to a funding body and they are so important in, in this country. So we said, all right, we've got a dialogue. They like this idea. Let's see if we can start scripting. So I think I started scripting six months before we went to Berlin, not knowing we were going to get into Berlin. And in some ways, if the film festival's circuit hadn't been so good for us, it would have been not worth our while. But yeah, I, I started scripting then. Um, Lee, Lee supported that. Uh, yeah, we didn't have any any support from from the script editor or, or such at that stage. We went across to Berlin with a feature film in our back pocket. In fact, we were editing it on the plane on the way over, um, and we didn't end up showing anybody that script. But it gave us gave me a confidence when I was taking those meetings that I knew that we had something that had that we had a short film as a proof proof of concept and one that had got into berlin and then we had a feature script that deserved to be made into a feature film so both of those assets really gave me a confidence to take those meetings um and promise a script in due course we then um, applied to screen australia for development funding and we pretty much paid one rewrote that uh, original script uh so that that the script we took to berlin has hasn't probably hasn't seen by anyone other than joe dylan um but there were like some a lot of the gags are still in there there's some of the songs because i would write the songs as i went along with the script so a lot of the songs survived its their way into the movie um but yeah it was a total total rewrite but it was really comforting to kind of go not just do we have an idea this idea is translatable because one of the first things 
the people would say when we would bring it in was like, oh, look, we love the short film, but I don't think there's 90 minutes in this. And being able to say, no, there is. So it's like things like the, the Rock of Stedford, which was introduced into the movie to give it that beautiful 90 minute arc that was introduced in the very first draft. So in the very first draft, we knew this is how we kind of carry this movie. And that, yeah, that idea stuck all the way through. Yeah. Did you come from a background in like musical theatre or writing music or, how, you know, because it's somewhat unusual to... Um, be making musicals full stop uh, but you know to, to make it as your first feature film and one that's really good as well you know what what was your background in music like uh, it's an odd one so I, as I said I'm from a country area so my mother paid for me to get musical tuition in fact I think it was my mother's idea she just said this kid's creative let's just throw throw some piano lessons at him uh, and I was taught by the local piano teacher who wasn't necessarily the most technically proficient person in the world a beautiful woman um but then i got to college and everyone realized that you know this this kid can read perfectly he can't play for crap so i was like i think that the the music teacher would literally bully me until i left the class it's like he was like we don't want to have to we don't want to bring down the college's reputation by putting this kid through exams so i think i stuck it out to do one exam round but then the next year i'm like oh this is this is crap i'm not i'm not going to bother doing this and i was i i still like playing piano and i still like doing music so i started to kind of write angry songs about things that were crap in life and then they kind of became slightly funnier so they i think they began as therapy and then they kind of became a bit of an entertainment source yeah i mean you you kind of tow this subversive line really well in um you know i didn't i didn't quite know what to expect when i watched the film in the sense of am i watching am i going to be watching like a kind of popcorn musical or am I going to be watching a kind of Trey Parker, Matt Stone, like complete uh, envelope pushing satire or, but it kind of towed the subversive line without being too crass, but it knew when, it, it certainly knows when to, when to go there um, and also when to be poignant and sweet. Is it, it seems to me that this kind of, you know, darker sense of humor is a kind of thread throughout your work from you know from what i'm hearing and from what i've seen as well how uh, important is it for you you know in the context of australian films where we spoke before about having a reputation for being being quite dreary um how how important is it for you to kind of try and differentiate yourself from that and make things that are i suppose comedically driven I think like purely just from my own point of view, I can be quite a depressing human being. Like I, I, I'm not the most fun person in the room. Uh, but so, so if I don't make comedies, I feel like my work can get really dour and depressing. I've since tried to write a few dramas since finishing Emo and they just come out as really, really bleak. I've just finished one that had a rape dungeon sequence in it. And I'm like, oh geez, no one wants to watch that movie. But I think like the, the darker cynical side of it is, is me. So I, I think I understand that the the shape of the, the movie is really important and that's what people latch onto and they, they want to see something that they have seen before. So they, they're okay with the fact that it's a Romeo and Juliet story. It's like no one hates that story. People love seeing it. And the fact that it's an emo and a Christian is like this, this new thing that's slightly refreshing about it. But it's also something that explodes the idea a little bit because this emo is not going to end up happy by the end of the movie. This emo does not want to be happy by the end of the movie. So purely by making those little changes, you can kind of go, this format has a limit. 
So I, I like to think that we kind of explore the limit that the format has. And sometimes I think people, especially critics, have watched it and said, oh, this is just cliche. And this is like, you know, it pulls out all the tropes in the book. And it's like, well, of course it does. It's like we are kind of trying to exp- explode those tropes and say, how do these emos and people who aren't happy about these tropes fit within these tropes? And I think that's the part that that's me. Um, and the, yeah, the cynical lyrics, I think, is, is the best part uh, the most refined part of, of that tone but I think it's all the way throughout the, the movie yeah there's you know the, there were certainly parts where I was sort of I guess caught off guard or surprised by the where, where, where it would go which is which is refreshing but at the same time there was that sense of familiarity about the characters or the story that was being told um, what were some of the challenges that you guys faced on a kind of day to day basis or when you were in production um, for this film we had enough of a budget to cover the costs for for what we needed we had a six-week shoot um, which was punctuated by christmas and new year so we had a, a week a week and a bit break in between two lots of three weeks um so we were lucky in that regard luckier than so many other filmmakers um but it was a you know it, it's a, it is an ambitious film and one that i i think quite proudly we we pulled off but it meant that neil was under a lot of pressure with a large ensemble cast many actors uh, big set pieces within the film um and you know it was our, it was our first fully funded film so all the all the usual challenges that would come with that yeah I, I think it was just the like in some ways it's amazing that we were funded and went into production so quickly but i think there are some there were some repercussions for that and for me i think it happened almost a little bit too quickly and i think especially as a first-time filmmaker you're not able to say no and you're not able to say no i need six more months or i can't go into production if we don't have the music recorded first so there were some things that it's like i just should have pulled the brakes and said no i need i need three or four more weeks if we're going to do this properly and as a first-time filmmaker like the yeah the film wouldn't have got done if i had said no like I, I think there would have been a period where we just couldn't have made it, um, but at the same time, yeah, eh, being able to say no is a strength that you don't know how to do in your first film, and I think it's it's an invaluable thing to know. Is there anything that you would do? Is that something that you would do differently if you had your time over again? Yeah, I think because we shot just before Christmas. Um, this is me and Lee working through therapy on the couch here. Yeah. <laughs> so we shot just before Christmas, uh, and you know there was always the option we could have shot in January. Yeah. We would have lost some of our cast if we had done that. But you know there might have been other casts that would have been available. Um, so I, I don't know. I would have needed those three weeks. I, there was a point where it's like I said, I absolutely need to be have recorded these songs before we go into pre-production, or I can't do it. Yeah. And then it turned out that we, we couldn't do it, and I'm like, I, and I didn't, I didn't pull on the brakes and say, no, got to, got, I can't do it. Like I said, I couldn't do it, and I was right, I can't do it. But I, I kind of buried my head in the sand and said, no, I can do it. And it's like, no, you've got to stick by your guns and say, no, I can't do it, I can't. Yeah, and I, look, we, we were naive. It was our first first major film. Um, we produced a twenty song double CD soundtrack in the middle of pre production ridiculous if we said that to anyone in the lead up i'm sure they would have said you know you've you've got to be kidding <laughs> but um uh you know when you haven't done it before and done it at that level you don't really know 
And we're in this interesting period in the industry where budgets are getting smaller and smaller and things that are being expected are getting bigger and bigger. And I think people are kind of losing sight of what you should say yes to and what you should say no to because projects will only get funded if they're big and brave these days. But with the budget shrinking, how do you pull that off? So I don't know. I think the line is also getting blurry as to what you should or shouldn't tolerate as an artist uh, or like as, as just someone who practically has to rock up on set every day and keep sane. Um, like I don't know whether other productions would also do music while they were doing pre-production. I, it's baffling. I, I don't know how you could do it, but there are more musicals doing it. You look at I'm watching Crazy Ex-Girlfriend at the oh, moment, yeah, and I just fun. wonder how are they? It's bloody great. Yeah. Um, and I wonder how are they? How are they pulling this off? Like they would have to do all of those songs before they started doing anything. Otherwise, that cast must be killing themselves every day to get, to rock up on set after doing the the studio recording beforehand, and it'd just be enormous. But also the resources behind it, though. So you know they've got they've got lyricists and 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 composers who are working behind the scenes so that when the lead actor who is a writer on the on the show and does um sing the majority of the songs probably steps into quite a safe space it's completely prepared um so it's part of the process um we didn't have that process in place we didn't have our lead actor until um a few weeks out of pre-production um, and uh, as Neil said, many of our actors were only available for a certain amount of time. So we didn't have the, even if, even in hindsight where uh, we would have made a more informed decision to um, separate um, song recording to with pre-production, we didn't have the actors, you know, the actors still had to voice, had to, had to record their songs. Um, so had to be in town and therefore, you know, how long can you afford to, to pay them to be in town and are they available? You guys have had a... Um you know, great amount of success with the, you know, the projects that you've done to date, you know, speaking before about Berlin and, you know, this, uh, and Emo the Musical, where that's gone. How do you guys kind of, uh, where would your idea of success have begun when you started the process of making Emo the Musical and how would you view its success or it as a success now? I think we're still really deeply in the middle of it at the moment. I mean, we've I've stepped away and stopped doing work on it for a while, but Lee's only just recently slowed down a little bit on the on the publicity of it because we've just done our, our iTunes release. But yeah, we're going to be on on demand late in February, and I think that's the point where the people that we want to see it, which is young girls, like that's where they're going to see it is gonna, is going to be there. Um, so I don't like beforehand it was kind of reaching that audience um, and, and I think that's still it's still the dream at the moment uh, it, it's interesting because we I have always sort of this is a project by project industry so at the moment it is still just getting this project to reach its audience um, I don't think we've quite done it yet but I think I think there's still hope for us it's 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 interesting how I've evolved my definition of success. I think coming into this, it was about commercial viability. It was making sure that I created content that had that was seen by the the, the widest audience possible, um, and that's been redefined by me in, in a number of ways over the years. Um, what how the, I define emo's success? Um, emo is successful in that it's. A great film. It's a really solid story. It's it's engaging. It's entertaining. It delivers it delivers messages and politics that I believe in in a fun way and an accessible way. It just hasn't uh, been seen by the audience that we wanted it to. Our theatrical release was not a success, 
and we're now online uh, and finding that audience. Interestingly, the short has been seen by um, 600, nearly 700,000 people. Um, and you would hope that they would find the feature and, and celebrate the feature as much as they celebrate the short online. Um, and I reckon that will come in due course, but we just haven't hit it yet. Mm. What, what, just out of curiosity, what has been the process for you of getting it onto these uh, streaming services? Um, the, the feature film was pretty much a self-release in partnership with Jonathan Page from Bonsai Films. Um, we were aiming at getting it into uh, a number of suburban cinemas and, and, and we weren't able to do that. That was our downfall in regards to our theatrical. But the industry recognised it was a good film. Uh, when we played at MEF in, in 2016, uh, we had an industry screening and, and people raved about it. So when it came to home entertainment, um, we were able to talk to NBC Universal, we talked to Roadshow, we talked to Mad Men, we talked to Umbrella, um, and we ended up go- partnering with Mad Men for the home entertainment release. So that means that it is on iTunes, it is on, on Google Play, on Vimeo On Demand, on, on YouTube um, movies, um, and it is quite accessible. That's awesome. Um, well... Neil and Lee, thank you both very much for uh, for having a, a ramble with me. I really appreciate you inviting me into your home and, and, and chatting about your lives and your careers. Um, I, uh, I finish all of my podcasts with the same question. <laughs> Lee's looking away. <laughs> Not looking forward to this one. I, I, I've, I know the question. It's what makes us silly. And um, I had thought of an answer previously and I've forgotten what it was. Other than the fact that I'm just not a very silly person. Which is embarrassing. Maybe I should ask Neil. Neil, what yeah. makes Lee silly? Oh, oh what go. makes Lee silly? Oh, geez, no, I feel like that would be that would Let's be rude. Do. Oh, yeah, I don't want to. Look, you're on the list. I'll tell you privately. Yeah. It's yeah. like, no, he's great. He's just terrific. Well, what makes you silly? <laughs> oh, I think what makes me silly is that I work too bloody hard, and I don't give myself enough credit for that work. And I look at other people all the time and look at what they're doing and think they're so much more successful and amazing. And I think the whole industry is quite silly because, yeah, we push ourselves too bloody hard sometimes. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where you don't really... Like, I I can relate to that entirely, you know, feel like when I do actually step back and go, wait a minute, I pretty much do nothing but work. But then when you're in the flow of it, you're not really... You're not really thinking about it. You're not really aware of what you're doing. You're just kind of just getting getting on with it and doing it and you're looking at all these other people and what they're doing and feeling like wow they're doing so much more or I need to keep doing more or whatever that is and you're almost waiting for somebody to come up and say you can relax you've done a good job take a break (laughs) and no one will ever do that in some ways it's such a lonely industry and even those people who are looking at who are quite successful they're waiting for someone to come pat them on the shoulder and say you're all right. go home you've had it you've done good good today Mm doesn't happen maybe one day one day no 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 i I can't imagine it you've got to you've got to do it yourself (laughs) well done al well done (laughs) thanks guys